from the Los Angeles Times, this is Asian Enough. Each week on this podcast, we talk to one Asian American guest about the joys, the complications, and everything else that comes along with being Asian American. I'm one of your hosts, Tracy Brown. And I'm your other host, Johanna Buya. So Johanna, this is the first episode we're hosting together, and I'm super excited for all your New York insights. Yes, I am so excited to flaunt that I'm a New Yorker for the first time at the LA Times. And I'm really excited about our guest today, too. We're talking to Angela Yee. She's the host of The Breakfast Club, which you may know for its many viral celebrity interviews. And her voice is the soundtrack to the mornings of so many New Yorkers. And when I was growing up, I was obsessed with the station that she's on, Power 105.1. It was literally the only station that we listened to. We would go late to school just so we could keep listening to it. Angela also co-hosts a podcast called Lip Service and has a whole day named after her in New York City. She spills the tea on her future with The Breakfast Club, tells us about her Black and Chinese upbringing, and offers a few pointers on how to talk to people you don't agree with. What I've had to learn is that sometimes we just have to agree to disagree and you can't force people to see your point of view, just like they're not gonna force me to see theirs. If you believe something really, really strongly, I can't sit here and waste my breath trying to make you understand what I'm saying. All I can do is voice my opinion for people to know where I stand and then I can leave it there. Our conversation with Angela Yee, coming up after this short break. Welcome back to Asian Enough. Here's our conversation with the media personality and entrepreneur, Angela Yee. Thanks for joining us, Angela. Thank you, Johanna. Thank you, Tracy. I know these are like sometimes difficult topics to discuss. So I appreciate the platform that we have to talk about it, especially right now. It's something that I've been having to think about a lot. We're super excited too. Just to start, like The Breakfast Club, it's a radio show in New York that's become incredibly popular. The reach is so vast that even myself, like I grew up and I live in California, even I know about it. So I guess, you know, just to start off, my question is, Why radio? Can you walk us through your journey and how you got started? Well, radio was never something that I pursued. I was working in marketing and I was working for Eminem's clothing line. And so Eminem was starting his own radio station on Sirius called Shade 45. And so I approached them about doing marketing at Sirius if they could possibly plug me in uh, to be able to get a job in that department. And there was an opening on the morning show that they had just started. They were looking for a woman as a co-host. And so I was able to audition and get that opportunity. So that's how radio even started for me. And I think that, you know, once you get started doing something like that, it does become very addictive. So I started off as a complete, like less than amateur. And then I think doing something like that every single day, you'll get better at it. And so it was just really like being in morning radio boot camp. Yeah. And you mentioned they they were looking for a woman specifically. I mean, growing up in New York, I'm from Ozone Park, Queens originally. And like the only stations I would listen to was Power 105.1. And for those of you who don't know, that's where The Breakfast Club airs. Um, and, you know, it's, I mean, Power 105.1, even if you're a host on there, 
and you're not on a nationally syndicated, nationally recognized show, it's a huge deal, right? It's a big part of New York culture. It's a big part of New York rap and hip hop, which obviously is foundational for the rap and hip hop industry broadly. And so hearing a woman's voice is is pretty rare on stations, um, I mean, radio stations generally, but also just in hip hop and rap. Why were they looking for a woman in particular? And can you tell us how you found your voice sort of in this space of like majority male voices? To be honest, when I started on Shade 45, there was no other woman on the whole entire station. And so I think for morning radio, they wanted a different perspective because it was all guys in the room. Mm -hmm. I also feel like people always look at women as like the sidekick and not necessarily the main host. So they're okay with putting you in that position. But it's hard to have a show that's so important. Like a morning show is really the anchor of a station and to not have a woman's voice on there because where's that representation? And so while I think at first people don't look at you as a main host, you know, they do want to have a woman's perspective, but it's a weird balance because they want to give you a, a voice, but not too much of a voice. Were you able to fight against that? I mean, what, what was that like early on? Because the station was brand new, it was really a great time to make your own way. Mm-hmm. The way that I am, whenever I do something, I'm all in. And so once I started doing it, I was there early. I was working late every single day, coming up with segment ideas. I ended up getting my own nighttime show on the station. And so once you put me in, I'm going to do a everything that I can possibly do. And so that's what basically happened is I just worked so hard. I'll outwork everybody. And I think as a woman, you also feel like you have to do that. You have to be the one that's the most prepared. You have to be the one that is showing up and on time and making sure that you're the most professional one. And I just feel like I was in that position. I was the one that was, you know, doing all the stories every day. They were like, Angela, this is your position. You're going to be the one that's going to know everything. And then the other host is just going to weigh in. So it gives you a lot more of the responsibilities. And I feel like while you might feel it's not fair, it also is a way for me to get better at what I do. I think it's great to be the person in the room that really knows the most about what's going on. I'm curious, I think, especially about like the learning curve, because this is like this podcast is my first entry into anything audio. So like what was the learning curve for you like when you got started and, you know, you're definitely like confident and great at it now. If I ever listened to my first show and I still have it somewhere, it sounded awful. And part of it is being able to listen to yourself and critique yourself and get better. And while it's a hard thing to do and I was cringing every single time I would listen, I definitely did it so that I could understand even the inflections in my tone, words that I use as crutch words, just how to express myself better. And it helped me a lot to be able to do that. Another thing that helped me was to not write everything down, but have bullet points. And so I do all my own research and I have everything there, but I never want to just be reading because when you read, it does sound like you're reading. And so it's just certain things that I had to learn as I progressed because I was so nervous at first when I started that I wouldn't go out. I wouldn't do anything but go to work and then go home. And I would have like a packet of 100 pages worth of information that I was going through all the time because I just wanted to make sure that I was overly prepared. There was a, a TEDx talk of yours that I watched and you were talking about like when you first got into radio, you had no experience and people were like, oh, she must have like slept with someone and that's how she got that job and they were jealous. I mean, that's like, well, it's BS, right? But it's also like a really unique thing for women where it's like you're sexualized and your accomplishments are sexualized. I mean, can you talk us through a little bit of that? How much of that did you face early on in your career? 
I face that all the time. And especially when I first started doing radio, there were people I thought I was friends with. And I would learn later on that they had the worst things to say about me. Oh, she got that job. She definitely slept with somebody. Even one of my managers at work, he didn't know me. And he told me when I first started that he thought, oh yeah, she definitely slept with somebody to get this job. And to me, it was like, if I was a guy, you would never have thought that. You would just have thought, okay, they're giving this girl an opportunity because there were other people there that had never worked in radio before too. But I was just the only woman. And I was offended. And I said, that is the worst thing that for a woman, you already have other women saying that about you. And then you have men assuming that you got this opportunity, not because you deserved it, not because of the relationships that you worked so hard to build over the years, but because you slept with somebody. I don't know who it was that I was supposedly having to have slept with, but that's interesting that rumors can really get started that way and damage somebody's whole reputation for no reason. Oh, wow. Like I said, I grew up in Ozone Park, Queens, right? And that's such a foundational part of who I am. There obviously are culture enclaves throughout Brooklyn and Queens, but my block in particular was extremely diverse. Like the kids I grew up playing basketball with were Filipino, Guyanese, Dominican, Puerto Rican, Brazilian. I'm half Bengali, half Filipina. And so I think being immersed in so many different cultures so early on in my life, like really opened my eyes to different ways of living, different languages. And I think most importantly, these different voices that are really just not represented in in media, in news. And that's why I think I am a journalist. And so I guess my question to you is, I mean, you grew up in Flatbush. How has that shaped who you are, how you think of yourself in the world and sort of your role as someone who grew up in Flatbush? I think about my youth and when I was younger, my whole world was just flatbush. There wasn't a lot of traveling outside of my area and my neighborhood. Like maybe the furthest I would go was the other side of Prospect Park and then to King's Plaza, which is a mall all the way on the other side of Brooklyn. I would take the bus there and go to the mall. Even when I was younger, the only place I ever went was there and to the West Indies to where my mother was from, this little island called Montserrat. I didn't know much else. And so once I started to venture out and have these experiences, it really does open your mind up to a whole lot more. And I wish I would have been able to do that from when I was younger, because who knows where you would be or what you would be doing now if you would have had more exposure. And I just think about some of the people that I grew up with that didn't have the exposure and the experiences that I had. You know, fortunately, my parents heavily stressed education. So they had me in all these different programs after school and on the weekends. And they wanted to make sure from when I was young that I went to college. So I think I was really fortunate that at least I had that. While we didn't have money to be taking vacations and doing those things, at least I had parents that were really um, education focused. And then I had friends that had money. I went to private school because I was in this program called Prep for Prep where they take kids from these low-income neighborhoods and put them in private schools. And so I did have friends when I went to private school that I was exposed to so many different things. You, I, I didn't know anything outside of my neighborhood. There's all these other different areas that I didn't even know existed when I was younger. And so I just think it's important for people to venture out and for parents to make sure that with their kids, they are exposed to different types of people. Because I grew up where my dad's side of the family is all Chinese. My mom was an only child but we did go to the West Indies all the time. And my grandparents on my mother's side did live with us. But my neighborhood was an all black neighborhood, a lot of people from the Caribbean. And so culturally, that was all I really knew. Um, I'm actually curious about your trips to the West Indies when you were a kid. Like, what was that like? Uh, So when my grandfather retired, he went and built his dream home in Montserrat. And so every summer and every Christmas, my family would go there and we would just spend the entire uh, Christmas there, entire summers. And it was a whole different world for me because when you're from Brooklyn, you're taught a certain way. We don't speak to people we don't know. 
We don't look at people in the eye if we don't know them. We mind our business. But when I went out there, I remember when we first got there, the first time I went, people were like waving at me. And I was like looking around, like, who are they waving at? (laughs) And so it was my first time feeling like, okay, you can say hi to people that you don't know. You can speak. You can slow it down. You don't always have to be in a rush. And just to be out in nature, like my grandfather had goats in the backyard. You know, he grew sugarcane and sorrel and mangoes, you know, fresh fruits and all of those things. It, it was an amazing experience. I used to love that. And it's so different from Brooklyn. So different. Yeah. Were you saying hi to people in Brooklyn when you when you come back from West Indies? No, no. Like on the streets. <laughs> I was like, if someone said hi to me, I'd be like, okay, what is this person about to do to me? <laughs> You have you have to adapt. It's so funny. I was just coming from lunch with this. Um, she's a young female artist from Brooklyn. She's like 19 years old. And we were talking about that. Somebody in the restaurant was looking at her and she was like, why are they looking at me? I'm like, maybe they know you, girl, because you are a rapper from Brooklyn and we're in Brooklyn. But we we do get really defensive and we are always trying to be like on guard about our energy and our space. And so I feel like coming from Brooklyn, you grow up kind of with an attitude, but you can't help it. And then being able to travel other places is what really opened my eyes up and made me more patient. You know, you mentioned these trips to the West Indies, but you also brought up how your father's Chinese and your mother's from the West Indies. I'm also biracial, like my mom's Japanese and uh, my dad is half Japanese and half white. I'm always so curious to hear about what that mixed experience is for, for different people. So like, what was that like for you? It's an interesting time right now in particular because I think about how I was raised And my grandparents on my father's side were not happy that my father married a Black woman. And so it was just a lot of us feeling kind of left out of things, but not really understanding it from when we were young. I know my grandparents didn't let my younger aunts and uncles come to the wedding. The older ones were able to make the decision and attend, but it was a big deal, you know, in the family. And it's something that people don't address either because we've never really talked about it in the family. And I just remember before... um, My grandfather has since passed, but I just remember one day, you know, my dad was like, go sit next to your grandfather. And I went and sat next to him and he like got up and moved. I don't think he's ever spoken to me like my whole life. Wow. Wow. And I mean, the rest of your family, what's your relationship like with that side of your family? Everybody, my aunts and uncles are great. They're amazing. But it's just that it was my grandparents. And I think they came from China. And I feel like the images that people have of Black people in other places they're not good. Like they look at black people, like, I don't know what they think about us. And so I guess I felt like being successful has kind of shown them in a way because my grandmother um, did pass during this pandemic, but she did speak to me. She wasn't as bad as my grandfather, but there was, she doesn't speak English. And so there was always a wall up and I never really felt that comfortable. Yeah. And how has that affected your relationship with your Chinese identity? I think I, when I was younger, I didn't really identify so much with it because everybody in my family on my dad's side can all speak Chinese. My brother and I don't know any Chinese, unfortunately, because we weren't really raised with that side culturally like that. But we did celebrate things like Chinese New Year was a big deal. So we would always be at those celebrations. You know, Christmas was always with my Chinese side of the family and weddings and funerals, very traditional. You know, they did practice Buddhism. And so... I know things just from having to be at these events. And when I was in college, I did take like Chinese literature courses because I did want to learn more about it just because I wasn't learning about it at home. 
on the other end of that, you know, you mentioned that, I mean, obviously Flatbush is, well, obviously for me, but not obvious for our, our listeners. Um, it, it's, it's predominantly West Indian and your dad is Chinese. I mean, did your dad face any discrimination when you were a kid? How did you feel as someone who was mixed in a predominantly West Indian neighborhood? Because I lived there my whole life and grew up there and my parents lived there for so long, everybody in the neighborhood knew him and was familiar with him. But it was always a lot of jokes. Even when I was in school, my last name is Yi. And so kids make a lot of cruel jokes, but I always had really tough skin about it. I think Chinese people or Asian people in general and Black people don't have the best relationships. And so it was a lot of jokes on, on both sides. Like there's a lot of things that Black people have to say about Asian people that Asian people have to say about Black people. And so sometimes I'm in the middle of that. Like I've heard Black people say awful things about Asian people and I'm standing right there because they forget that I'm also half Chinese. And they'll be like, oh yeah, you know, it's just a joke. And then vice versa. Like I don't, I never have thought that Asian people necessarily looked at me like I was Asian either. Even though my last name is Yi, just based off of how I look. I don't really feel like they look at me and they're like, oh yeah, she's one of us. More of our conversation with Angela Yee coming up after this short break. Stay with us. Welcome back to Asian Enough. Here's the rest of our conversation with Angela Yee. Like, I think, you know, looking at current events now, it's, it's undeniable that it's it's a time where, you know, like there's heightened awareness about anti-Asian racism. We just went through a year where it at least seemed like we were finally actually talking about how Black people have been treated in America. And I guess I'm curious, like, how has this last year been for you? It was just was a lot of heaviness, watching the news and having to report on certain things. And it's just every day something else happening. You know, and then I remember when I was talking about all the Asian discrimination, we posted the clip on a YouTube page and there was so much hatred in the comments because Black people do feel like, well, we've been dealing with this all this time, so why should we care? And Asian people don't stand by us, so why should we care? And, you know, they treat us badly when we go into stores and when we, you know, have to deal with them and they come to our neighborhoods and and profit off of us, but don't give back to the community. And, you know, that's a real way that Black people feel when it comes to that. And then culturally too, with Asian people have a tendency to just keep their head down and keep going and not really be too vocal about things that are happening, whether it's outside their community or even in their own community. Just keep it in the household. You know, you don't have to say anything about it. Just deal with it. Keep pushing. Yeah. And it's so interesting. Well, first, I want to point out that all three of us are like mixed ethnicities. And I feel like that has never happened in the history of Asian enough. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I think like Tracy was saying earlier, it's it's really interesting. Obviously, a lot of like mixed kids have this sort of struggle, like trying to navigate their identity and kind of like figuring out their relationship with both sides. And I'm half Bangladeshi, half Filipina. Um, and I think over time, I basically found like cultural similarities that sort of pulled the two identities together. And it's funny, growing up in Queens, there was like a physical manifestation of that. Like um, we used to go to Jackson Heights all the time, which is predominantly South Asian. Um, 
You can get like every Bengali, Pakistani, Indian, like food that you want, clothes, whatever. And then adjacent to it was Roosevelt Avenue, which is like predominantly Filipino. And so it's like all the Filipino groceries and restaurants and stuff like that. And so anytime we would go to Jacksonites, we'd also go to Roosevelt Ave. And it felt like literally like the physical manifestation of my identity. And I I think back about it all the time because I'm just like, that is literally who I am. I'm like, I'm going between these two identities. I'm not one more than the other. And being in one place and engaging on one side doesn't make me less the other. Um, and that's just right. like one way that New York kind of like helped me tie those two parts of me together. I'm curious, I mean, do you feel like both your identities are just like so fragmented or do you feel like you've found any similarities or ways to marry the two sides? I'm always trying to marry the two sides. And it's interesting because Black people also, some of them will say, oh, she's not Black. And I've seen that a lot lately, like people are trying to push that narrative. But I mean, it's the most ridiculous thing to me because there's no way that I'm not Black. Like, you can't tell me, oh, you're not Black, you're not Chinese. It is what I am. Like, I was born that way. And I've never denied either one of my heritages. So I think people try to use that as a way to kind of like attack you. And it's interesting to me because this never has happened to me before. Like, it's happening now. You know, I I do feel like Donald Trump has caused a lot of this. To be honest, the things that he said during the pandemic about coronavirus and making people feel like, oh, these Chinese people bought this virus here and then people are randomly attacking Chinese people. And then we've had so much um, police brutality against Black people. And then, you know, Black people are are very upset because there's an anti-Asian crime bill that's been passed, but Black people haven't gotten anything from the government Mm. when it comes to that. So it's just so much going on right now. It's like a But I do feel like it's a great opportunity to have conversations and for both sides to come together and realize, okay, we both need to do better. And you can't blame individuals, right, for something that you look at as a problem because no matter what, as human beings, you know, we all know amazing people of other ethnicities. It doesn't matter so much what that is. It's really like how people were raised. And I do feel like it's an older generational thing too. I do feel like the older generation has these stereotypes and biases that are kind of getting pushed out now. And the younger generation is like, okay, we all got to figure out how we can work together and come together. You're talking about this recent denial of your Blackness. Like, do you think that happened because of this sort of rise in anti-Asian hate? Um, I don't know. I just... I think people will try to find any reason to attack you. Like as you get more popularity, there's more people that are always going to try to discredit you and find reasons to say, oh, she's not this. She's not that. Why is she doing this? When I first started doing radio and people didn't know what I looked like and they just heard my name, it was this big deal. Like, why is this Asian person commenting on our culture? And then I remember reading this on like blogs and then somebody was like, oh, no, she's actually black. And they were like, oh, I didn't know that. You know, so. They have preconceived notions of who you are based off of what you are, which is something that you can't control. On that name comment, I was just going to say, especially like as an Asian named Tracy Brown, I could very much relate relate to, you know, I get emails from people like, why are you talking about this Asian thing? And I'm like, oh, I mean, my, you know, my name is, I'm very proud of my name and it's definitely who I am, but it also is not (laughs) indicative of like everything about me. (laughs) 
Yeah, just send a picture of yourself anytime someone emails you that. <laughs> but yeah, I was going to say, I think I think it's so interesting that you bring that up because it's like, yeah, I mean, before, you know, the Breakfast Club was on YouTube and all of these clips are going viral. Yeah, I mean, you're just a voice on the radio. Like nobody knows really what you look like. I feel like that's such a relevant conversation right now because we have celebrities like Aquafina, who is Asian, but right. her character early on, like spoke in AAVE, right? And, and it was, there was this sort of question of like, as an Asian person, like, should you be appropriating Black culture in that way? And is, is that appropriation? I mean, I'd love to hear what your thoughts on that are. I think that if you genuinely have an appreciation for a culture and you're not trying to exploit it and you respect it, then I think that you're able to use your art in that way. And that comes down to like, even who is your team? Who are your people around you? Who are you affiliating yourself with? All of those things are really important. And it's something that we all have to be really conscious of, no matter what it is that we do. People are learning things now. Like you can't dress up in a headdress and pretend to be Indian for Halloween. It's offensive Mm -hmm. to Native American people. And there's so many things like some people will be offended if you dress up as um, as a geisha, you know, and so it's just all these things that you now have to um, take into consideration, but it's no need to harm somebody else or offend anybody else if you don't have to. Like, what's the point of doing that? And if you do, you have to learn from those things. So I do think it's important to make sure as you're stepping into another culture, like you could be like Eminem and grow up around all Black people in a Black neighborhood and become a rapper. You're still going to get criticized and you have to be ready and prepared for that. But I also think that you have to be really aware of the space that you're in and respectful of it. That's actually what's, you know, really interesting to me, especially like listening to the two of you talk about the various neighborhoods of New York and like the demographics, because we do grow around such different people sometimes. And you like you don't you don't even notice what you're, quote unquote, appropriating or bringing into your own understanding of yourself. Yeah, Because like, for instance, when we started um, on The Breakfast Club, one of my co-hosts used the word chinky, like for your eyes. And people use that word all the time. But that's an offensive word. And so my whole thing is, I'm not going to like get mad because I know you didn't have intentions to say it in a harmful way or you can't call Asian people Oriental people. Some people really don't know that and you have to correct them, you know, and without being angry about it if their intentions aren't malicious. And so certain things we should know, like, Nobody should be using the N-word if you're not Black. That's just a, we all should know that by now because it's Mm -hmm. happened enough. But there's just certain things that culturally people don't understand and don't know. So it's important to make sure that you can have those conversations and not attack people if, like I said, they didn't have bad intentions. Mm -hmm. What's been a big, like, I think lesson for me in this past year is, you know, even when it's not intentional, like finding a way to bring up that it's offensive to people, Mm -hmm. like, like, those are a lot of conversations I've had with my mom, I think, in this past year, just because I think in the past, I'm just like, well, she's my mom. Like, you know, you just kind of <laughs> let things pass. But, you know, like nudging, like, mom, like, you say that, but this is kind of what it implies. Like, maybe you shouldn't. And um, like, that's what I feel like is my responsibility as someone who could, you know, like, yeah. bring this up to someone with my mom. Like, do you feel like you have to, like, bridge the gap between the culture sometimes? Like, how how's it for you? I do try to do that. Like, I make sure that when it's Chinese New Year, 
and I'm at work, I make sure everybody understands like, okay, this is the year, you know, I let them know what's happening. I explain what it means. I feel like I do it every single year because you never know who's never heard the show before, who's listening now, you know, for Asian American and Pacific Islander awareness. Like I made sure I did a lot of panels about that. I feel like I focus a lot more on my black side than on my Asian side, but I do try to bridge the gap. I remember one year I did um, for Chinese New Year, I did do a brunch for my friends. And that was really nice because they've never had like celebrated Chinese New Year before. So just things like that. We did a whole dim something and it was really cute. So I appreciate being able to do things like that and just show people other cultures and, and my own culture too. And so it's interesting, even when my friends come over my house, And if my family's here, like when I first moved into this house and I had um, Thanksgiving here, I had my whole family over and then some of my friends. So for everybody to kind of mix in together, it was it was really nice. We started this episode talking about, you know, some of the difficulties that you've had as, you know, a West Indian and Chinese woman in radio. But are there ways that your identity have been like an asset for you in this industry? Anytime that you can have cultural awareness of things that are other than what's mainstream here, it's a good thing. I feel like it's made me really receptive to other things. If you listen to the show, I'm probably the most open-minded person on there. Mm -hmm. And that has a lot to do with my upbringing, with my culture, with having to deal with these two different sides, with understanding and seeing like some of the biases for myself firsthand and seeing how hurtful that can be and having it be hurtful to me also. It makes me really hypersensitive to other people and their feelings. Because sometimes people will be like, I don't understand how you can be trans and I don't understand this. And my whole thing is, it doesn't even have anything to do with you. All you have to do is accept people as human beings. And I've had so many arguments with people, but I'm probably the most open-minded out of all my friends who I know. And I know part of that is just because of having to deal with the things that I've had to deal with coming up and not wanting other people to have to go through that. I'm actually very curious because, you know, like on your show, you guys discuss a lot of these, you know, contentious, like hot button issues and stuff. Like, what is it like to engage with these topics with some people that, you know, you may not agree with? You know, sometimes it gets really emotional. But what I've had to learn is that sometimes we just have to agree to disagree and you can't force people to see your point of view, just like they're not going to force me to see theirs. If you believe something really, really strongly, I can't sit here and waste my breath trying to make you understand what I'm saying. All I can do is voice my opinion for people to know where I stand and then I can leave it there because people want to believe what they want to believe. They want to feel how they want to feel. It doesn't matter what you say. And arguing is really just a waste of your own breath. And I'm not trying to do that. So I like to just state how I feel and keep it moving. Like how... You say keep it moving. And I feel like for me, just I feel like that would be so hard. Can you can you talk a little bit about like, what does that mean? How do you even do it? Because I feel like it's such a burden, right, to have to deal with this all the time and go back and forth and argue and and argue with people who, you know, you're not going to change their mind in one sitting. It's like people who strongly support Trump, right, those Trump supporters who will say that the election was stolen. There's nothing I'm going to say to you that's going to make you be like, you know what, you're right. Actually, that election was fair. (laughs) It's just, I can't do it. And I have an opinion on you based off of what you say to me too. Now, does that mean that I hate you? Of course not. You know, it just means that we have a difference in opinion. I might think yours is stupid. You probably think mine is stupid. And it is what it is. But I just feel like I can't let that bring my energy down. Because every single day, I would be battling with people. I have to battle with people on social media. I have to battle people in the studio with me. You know, when you watch the news, sometimes things will make you really angry. When you see certain clips of certain commentators saying things that you know are triggering, 
And I can't take that burden. All I can do is press forward and be as positive as I can be because sometimes those things can really make you feel like a negative person and make you feel angry. And I never want to feel like that. I want to make sure that I'm not discouraged to keep on doing positive things for my community, for people, and focusing on people that care and that get it. I also feel like on your show, you guys are having conversations about the culture and all this stuff. And so much has changed since you started. Like, how has it been for you to... Like, as you live it, do you look back about it and and think about it? Yeah, it's interesting to see. We've been doing this show. It'll be 11 years in November. And so, yeah, it's a long time. And we've all changed so much from the beginning of the show. But I'm pretty confident in the fact that I've always been like a pretty even person. I'm not really a negative person. I don't like to, I don't even like to speak negatively on other women. And so that's really been my main thing is that I know some people will say, oh, well, times have changed and we all used to do this and we all used to do that and we all have cheated or we all, and that's not true. And there was a period of time when it was really fashionable to be mean and when it was really great to be like a shock jock and to say things to get a reaction. And I feel like that's gone out of style because there's so much like anger and and nastiness in the real world that we don't really need that as part of our entertainment anymore. So I'll say that has definitely changed. You've been doing The Breakfast Club for 11 years now. You've been in radio for 17 years. You have a bunch of different podcasts. You even have a juice bar in Bed-Stuy. You're doing a bunch of different things. I mean, what do you see for the future? Are you trying to do The Breakfast Club for another 11 years? I mean, what what else are you trying to do? Oh, God, no. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I mean... Who knows? I'm not sure what I want to do. I know that this year my contract is up. So, you know, we'll be discussing that. And that's always a good time regardless, because either you stay and make more money or you leave. And it really is your decision. But it's been 11 years. And so we'll see what happens. I haven't even thought that hard about it because honestly, I've been so busy with everything else I have going on and making sure that I do my job every single day right now. And I have a coffee shop I'm opening next month. Oh, wow. Also in Bed-Stuy or where is it going to be? Yes, also in Bed-Stuy. Nice. Would you be like, okay, if you end up not renewing your contract? Yeah, I think I set myself up so I'll always be okay. And that's also important too for everybody out there when you are working and it's not your business to always make sure that you'll be okay. And I've always felt really confident that I've treated people well. Everybody knows I'm a hard worker. And so my resume speaks for itself. And I also know that if I decided to do something like on my own, I'd be okay with that too, as far as being an entrepreneur. And part of setting up all these other businesses is knowing that, okay, I have these real estate investments. I own these properties. You know, a lot of things that I have, most of them are paid off. And so I feel comfortable. And that's just a space that you want to be in where you never feel like you have to do anything because if not, you don't know how you'll pay your bills or how you'll survive. And it took me a long time and a lot of planning and a lot of investing and taking a a lot of risks to get to that point. Well, Angela, we are sad to have to let you go, but thank you, thank you so much for joining us. Did y'all just fire me? No. no we actually have one more segment. <laughs> Your contract with us is not up. Um, okay. Whew. Before we wrap up, it is time for our weekly segment called Asian Enough Confessions, where we share a time or thing that's made us feel that we're not Asian enough so that we can unpack it together. It's kind of like group therapy, just a little less painful, I feel like. Um, I, I'll go first. 
since I brought up Jackson Heights, it's probably a good time to talk about this. So my mom is Filipina. She looks very Filipina. Uh, she's like paler than my white husband, right? Like she doesn't look Bengali or South Asian at all. Um, so whenever we would shop in Jackson Heights, which is super South Asian, and we'd go to like different Bengali or Indian stores, um, the one thing you need to know about Jackson Heights is every price is negotiable. And so my mom was the king of haggling, not queen, the <laughs> king. Um, and it was like, it was like sometimes so uncomfortable. I would always feel bad for the shop owner or the employee. Um, and so she wasn't like people's favorite person at stores. And so a lot of the employees or the shop owners would talk about her like when I was there and she was there in Bengali because they didn't think that either of us were Bengali um, and they didn't think that we'd understand. And so they talked trash about my mom in front of her. And my mom also learned Bengali to speak to my dad's mom when they first got married. So she also knew Bengali. But the best part was she would always shave like a hundred or so dollars off of every price. <laughs> so she'd let them talk trash, pay, and then be like, which means like, thank you, have a good day in Bengali. And they like, their mouths would drop and like, they would like <laughs> laugh nervously and walk away. But it's like, I think I look Bengali um, in some ways, but like, because I'm with my mom, a lot of people guess that we're Indonesian or Malaysian or something like that. And they just did not think that we're Bengali. So that's how I like, don't feel Bengali enough sometimes, but it actually works in our favor because can't talk trash <laughs> around me. <laughs> Um, so Angela, do you have an Asian enough confession? Yeah. So in my family, I'm the pickiest eater. And so every time we would be going out to eat, I have family members like who own restaurants, you know, Chinese restaurants. And there's a lot of stuff I don't eat. Mm -hmm. I don't eat pork since I was young. And you know, in Chinese culture, pork is huge. Right. And so it would be like, okay, everybody's getting um, pork fried rice, but Angela has to get plain rice. And I don't eat seafood. So that was another thing. I've never eaten seafood my whole life. I don't eat red meat. And so that's always made me feel that way because I always have to have like a special plate. Yes. So that's always made me feel around my family. They acted like I was an alien because of all the different things that I don't eat. And it would always be like a little plate that I could have of like the food that I did eat that I would pick out the things that I didn't like. And so that always made me feel not Asian enough. Yeah. You had me at not eating pork because I'm Muslim and I don't eat pork, but seafood <laughs> is my life. So I would not be there with you. And I just want to know your ways because I was a vegetarian for a long time and I can say like no meat to like anyone. But like my Japanese relatives, when they like bought me food, like I couldn't. And I was like, I guess I'm eating these pork dumplings. Like there was... <laughs> <laughs> like, I didn't know how to say, like, no, thank you. <laughs> right. Those roast pork buns, boy. <laughs> All right. Well, Angela, in honor of your ties to radio and the music industry, my confession, it's not as serious, but, like, I'm not really into K-pop. <laughs> and, like, I feel like especially, like, now is the time, like, everyone is excited about it, and I should be, but, like, I don't really get it. <laughs> that's just being that's just being an adult. You get a pass for that. <laughs> thank you. I feel I feel good. <laughs> Do you have an Asian enough confession you want to share with us? Call us at 213-986-5652. That's 213-986-5652. Maybe we'll even play it on the show. Hi, I'm calling to contribute to your Asian confessions. Um, I am a half Vietnamese, half Irish college student, uh, second generation. And I just really resonated with all your confessions about, you know, struggling to feel like you're connecting with your culture and your ancestry 
specifically in regards to the language, my father immigrated to the United States at only around 14 years old and was the only Vietnamese person in Buffalo, New York for 20 years almost. And because of that, he really wasn't in touch with his Asian side and had to work to assimilate a lot to American culture. And that fed into the way that I was raised, um, not being exposed to the Vietnamese language or a lot of Vietnamese holidays, traditions or beliefs. And, you know, as a young adult, I've been working really hard to connect with that and also feel confident when I state that I'm Asian because so many times I hear in the back of my head, you're not Asian enough. But what is it to be Asian? What does it mean to be Asian? And that can only be defined by an individual because I realize I've been defining what is Asian based off what white people determine what Asian is. Because that's all that I've been taught living in America and the communities I've been grown up in. And so now I'm getting to that point where I'm redefining and reclaiming my Asian identity. Thank you. Um, my name is Kelsey Duke. I really appreciate your podcast and the space you give. And that's a wrap for this episode of Asian Enough. Thank you to Angela Yee for joining us. And thank you, our listeners, for listening. And don't forget, if you love our show, please leave us a review or recommend us to a friend. Our catalog includes interviews with actor Sandra Oh, VP Kamala Harris, and the rapper Ruby Ibarra. Asian Enough is hosted by me, Tracy Brown. And by me, Johanna Buya. Our producer is Asal Asanapur, and our executive producer is Abby Fentress Swanson. Our engineer is Mike Heflin. Our original music was composed by Andrew Epen. You also heard music from DeWolf Music in today's episode. Special thanks to Julia Turner, Ben Musig, James Reed, and Matt Brennan. This podcast is dedicated to the memory of our founding producer, Lina Anwar. Come back next week for another great episode of Asian Enough. It's me and Jen Yamato talking to writer Nicole Chung. When I would be out with my parents, like... I mean, strangers would ask, like, where'd they get you? And even with people who knew us, like, there's Nicole and her parents, she's adopted. It's very obvious. Like, it was just this, like, fact that uh, whether I liked it or not was just constantly announced as soon as you saw me with my family. And remember, don't say hi to strangers in New York. When you're from Brooklyn, you're taught a certain way. We don't speak to people we don't know. We don't look at people in the eye if we don't know them. We mind our business. 